Welcome to Canine Hijinks, the podcast for those who want to explore more ways to have fun with their dogs and perhaps discover the wider world of training and dog sports. It may even convert the casual pet owner into a dog sport enthusiast. Join me, Alyssa Looney. And me, Whitney Taylor, as we share our dog training journeys, as well as resources you can use to enhance your life with your canine friends. Welcome to Canine Hijinks. We are super excited to have another guest with us today. That's right. Sarah Baker is joining us from Washington State. Before we introduce her, though, Alyssa and Sarah, what fun things have you been doing with your dogs lately? I have done a lot of walking this week, especially with my puppy, and I actually discovered a new park that connects to an even larger park, which made for really great walking spaces this week. Awesome. Um, I've been trying to come up with outings to socialize the puppy. So we went to the airport parking lot and we went to a train station today and we walked around uh, downtown Sumner. That's awesome. Yeah. I took advantage of the nice weather and did some training outdoors. It's been a, a slow road teaching Sprite to jump into my arms. And so we're doing that now on the using the table, one of the agility obstacles as our sort of base, if you will. And so it's very heavy and I'm not going to bring it up into the <laughs> into the house. So it was nice to be able to work on that um, down <laughs> in my yard without having to move that gigantically heavy piece of equipment. All righty. So our guest today is Sarah Baker, a three-time AKC National Agility Champion, one-time AKC Preferred National Agility Champion, two-time European Open U.S. Agility Team member, and 2019 AKC World Team member. Sarah became interested in dog training when she was 13 years old. She wanted to be a veterinarian and thought that in addition to training her own chickens, guinea pigs, and cockatiels, training guide dogs would be a great hands-on experience. In 1995, that led her to her first guide dog puppy, Campo, a black lab. Campo got her hooked and she ended up raising and training five more guide dog puppies and seven other service dog puppies. In 2000, she made a career of training dogs and started teaching obedience classes and private lessons. In 2008, Sarah was introduced to agility, took class in classes, and was immediately taken with the sport. Huh, sounds familiar. She now <laughs> teaches foundation agility all the way up through competition classes, private lessons, and travels occasionally for seminars upon request. Welcome, Sarah. Thank you so much Welcome, for having Sarah. me today. Thanks. So as we heard in your introduction, you started training dogs at a pretty young age and have made it your career and found great success in the sport. So before we dive too far into agility, can you tell us about the dogs you currently have in your household? Well, uh, I have an eight-year-old border collie named Hawks. And he is the dog who won nationals three times and uh, is the has been on the world team and on the European Open team. Then I have a three-year-old English Cocker Spaniel named Skeptic. And he made it on the world team as a two-year-old but didn't get to go because of COVID. He is an amazing little dog who has taught me the most because he is very challenging. Um, <laughs> but I love him. 
Oh, he, no. oh, we do too. He's hilarious. <laughs> He's just not easy. <laughs> Which is fine. <laughs> and then I have a seven-month-old puppy, Sapporo, and she is a border collie. And uh, she's a sweet little girl, and she's coming along uh, very nicely, and she is easy. <laughs> Good. That's what we want. Right? Yes. You get that little balance, easy, hard, easy, hard. You you hope that that's the way that it goes. Well, I have loved doing these podcast intros because I learned so much about the people who, like, I know and talk to all the time, but I, Sarah, I didn't actually know how you got into the, into the sport, and I think oh. we do an entire podcast on training service dogs, given your background. I thought that was super interesting <laughs> and wanting to be a veterinarian. I, I was also interested in being a veterinarian, but as I always tell people, um, I didn't like, I don't like insides. I wanted nothing to do with insides. So I was much more oh. interested in the outside of the dog. <laughs> I love biology. <laughs> so cool. But today we're going to focus on agility. So how did you find out about the sport? I was going to Dogs World for rally classes. Oh, so you were doing something else and there was a class before or after? On the other side of the uh, a curtain. Oh. And I looked over and I'm like, oh, what are they doing? <laughs> <laughs> yes. All right. And so then joined a class and... There we go. And there you go. So that it's so funny. It just takes so little. It, it's it just this sport, man. It really it really gets you. Yes, it, it does. Sucks you in. Yes. <laughs> and so if you were advising somebody to start in the sport today, where would you tell them to start? Like with looking um, for classes and things or what exactly? If somebody has never tried it before and they've got a pet dog and they want to do something more with them, where would you tell them to start? Would it be with classes? Would it be behaviors at home? What would be the first thing you'd advise them to do? So if someone's just starting out, I would kind of hit it from different angles. I would start with, I, I would go to a class, but I would consider starting with just an obedience class to kind of get a feel for how can your dog focus with public distractions. Mm -hmm. And then they can work on something that they kind of know, sit down, stay, come in a new environment. And then when you are sure that they can work in another, another environment, then you can go work on harder things, which would be maybe an agility foundation class. That makes sense. Then yeah. at home, when you're in the obedience class, go online. There are so many different resources. YouTube, I have an online foundation puppy class, um, and you can start learning agility tricks and a lot of foundation behaviors that then when you go to agility foundation class, your dog will have an understanding of some foundation behaviors mm -hmm. and will have a history of reinforcement of working in new environments. Mm -hmm. Then you can combine those things together. Mm -hmm. Oftentimes, agility foundation is hard enough that when you put a new dog in a new environment with a new handler and new skills, it's just a little too much sometimes. That's raising a lot of criteria, as we would say. <laughs> All at once, yes. All yeah. at once. <laughs> so that's some great advice for sort of how to split those behaviors. That's, um, I don't think we've actually talked about splitting and lumping yet. Mm -hmm. So Not yet. I, Sarah is talking about something that I would consider splitting. So yes, breaking down absolutely. all the different pieces of 
what it takes to train a dog in a new environment to do a new sport and for you to learn a new thing and not being in a rush to, you know, get them on that A-frame. And so lumping, which we, we all do is when you you just take too big of a step that's really all splitting splitting the step versus lumping the step so that you'll hear those terms but that's really all it means except sometimes swear it feels like there's no way to split except then there always is and yes (laughs) usually yes (laughs) and you get and you get better at it but it certainly sometimes is like i just i don't know i don't know what i would do in between step one and step five. Oh, there yes. are there are multiple steps in there. It sounds like um we probably need to have a separate podcast just on what lumping and splitting means. <laughs> sounds like a good one. Yeah. Or, yeah. And so would your advice be any different, Sarah, if it was a kid or a teen looking to get into this? Are there programs that would be specific for them versus an adult? So sometimes um I've had a couple folks reach out to me and say they have a a young son or daughter who's interested in the sport, but they don't, they're not really sure what they should do to get started. I actually wouldn't recommend anything different. Okay. The junior handlers that I've worked with, the majority of them are far better than the majority of adults that I work with. (laughs) Hands down. Make sure your dog can focus, build some foundation behaviors and then, uh, yeah. And then put it together. And then another thing you can do to help yourself is people look at the dog training of agility. Absolutely. That's a huge part of it. But handling is a whole nother side of it. Yep. Uh So as a handler to prep for yourself, start watching handling videos, start watching people running courses so you can start to get a feel for what your job is going to be. That's a great idea. I joke a lot that I want a robot dog I want this like fake holographic dog that I can run and screw mm-hmm. up with and even just <laughs> just to practice the footwork I remember when I was learning the front cross which is a pretty basic one of the yes. first handling maneuvers you learn and I did some dance when I was a kid so I'm not completely uncoordinated but <laughs> god it was it was just so hard and I felt so bad for my dog as I'm trying to figure it out and tripping over my feet and I would you know, just practice on my own in front of a mirror to try and get that that muscle memory going so I I never really thought of prepping for a, what a handler was going to need to do that's excellent advice and if you have access to a trained dog and you're a novice handler, that is one of the best ways to learn. Mm-hmm. So all of my dogs will, will work for other people and they're trained. So if you're running my dog and a mistake happens, you bet it's you, not my dog. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. Skeptic did show me that when I was running him. Right? Versus if you're running a novice dog, you don't necessarily know if the dog doesn't have the skill or if you cued something incorrectly. Yes. It is my dream. It's my dream to have like a stable of dogs. You know, we've we've talked about before on the podcast about how agility is different than, say, learning to ride a horse. Because when you go to ride a horse, usually there's a stable full of beginner horses that are already trained. And so you're not having to train the person and the horse at the same time. And in agility, most commonly, the dog and the person are learning the sport at the exact same time. And, you know, our poor dogs are so forgiving bless their hearts because they'll keep trying for us usually um, even though we screw it up a lot and my students worry they they worry about messing up my dogs 
But the secret is to just reward everything. Because like I said, my dog is right. So if my dog goes off what you think is off course, well, my dog did what you told them to do. So if you reward them, you're just keeping up the training. Yep. That's a great point. That's a really great point. (laughs) So when you're teaching beginners in the sport, what kinds of things do you start with for foundations when both halves of the team are brand new? Well, for we, we really do have to focus on the dogs first because the handlers can't focus on anything until the dogs can focus <laughs> and, and have kind of a base knowledge. Um, I love it when I can have a class without dogs sometimes. Mm-hmm. But so teaching the dogs to focus, teaching the dogs to listen to cues, because agility is fast and we can't always show them what we want them to do. And words are hard for dogs. So teaching them words and how to listen um, and how to use their body. Agility is dangerous. So we want to teach them how to use each limb and how to have fun on obstacles, uh, on, on little itty bitty uh, training obstacles, not the big ones yet. I think um, your point about using their bodies is so important. So if we think about people, how often are you moving your body without even being aware of it? Right. right. So if you're learning to dance or you're learning a specific skill and you're moving your feet and aren't even aware that you're doing that, our dogs basically do the same thing. And with practice and different things, you can teach them to be more aware of where each limb is at what point so that they they know where they're moving. And when they're balancing on a 12 inch wide beam, which is the dog walk at full speed running, they have to have a lot of balance and coordination to be able to do that. So I would equate it to somebody learning how to dance and totally being unaware of where their feet are. And with time, you figure that out and we have to teach the dogs the same thing. Absolutely. I've seen many novice dogs, you know, the dog walk is only 12 inches wide, but it's several feet tall. And I've seen novice dogs walk up with their front feet, but they just don't know how to get their back feet up on the board. Mm-hmm. And those things just have to be taught. <laughs> the other point you made that I want to tease out a little bit is that dogs are terrible at verbals. They are, um, yes. dogs are not auditory in, in nature. And I mean, they hear really well, don't get me wrong, but that is not where they are getting their information from us. And so when you look at a chart of the types of information that dogs use on course, the verbal cue is very, very, very last. And even when you think about behaviors that you have that are very well trained, so sit down, stay, come, Oftentimes we have an like unintentional body language that goes with those if we, you know, lean forward when we want the dog to sit. And so there are many things that we do. I purposefully teach a a physical cue with my obedience cues. One, because I want to be able to cue the dog from really far away. But two, um, I have discovered the other advantage is that when your dog starts to go deaf, like Dexter, that you can still get him to sit down if you're sitting right in front of him, looking at him, and you can Mm -hmm. um, use your physical cue. So it's, it's just really important, I think, kind of for people to put in the back of their mind that even if you, if you think you have a, a verbal on something, it's sort of highly unlikely. I was shocked when I went to a seminar that was kind of about the basics of of verbals. And Fractal is obsessed with tunnels. He loves tunnels. He will go in a tunnel 
if he you're right he can glance at it and he wants to go in it and the challenge <laughs> was to not just not give any ver- verbal cue but to use some nonsense motion so i started doing jumping jacks and saying tunnel 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 and he stared at me like i was a ridiculous human being he had no idea what i wanted from him and here i thought for <laughs> sure that he would go in the tunnel but he was so confused because my motion didn't match the verbal cue and that he it wasn't truly a verbal cue so i just such an interesting point about how we really get the dogs to go where we want them to go 90 some percent of the time in agility yes i don't know how many times i've asked i've i've shown students how they don't have verbals i've asked them to just stand up straight put your hands behind your back and give a verbal cue and most of the time the dogs can't do any of the cues the humans think they can just stand there and (laughs) wag their tail and look really happy because they're at agility and we're going to do something but i have no idea what you're asking me (laughs) yep (laughs) so sarah what are some of the common challenges you see with new people in agility and what can they do to work on those issues probably one of so there's there's the dog and the human side Mm -hmm. so on the dog side it's going to be one is focus And two is understanding of all the behaviors that they're supposed to do. And on the human side, it's probably a combination of being able to lower criteria for their dogs to help them learn those behaviors. Mm -hmm. And on the handling side, being able to remember what they're supposed to do. Mm -hmm. And a lot of the time, things just don't get practiced. Right. Mm -hmm. And so they don't get learned. We've talked about this a little bit, that it takes a long time to learn some of these skills. And so it's going to be mm-hmm. important to be able to practice outside of class. And I think one of the things that I have seen and participated in, done myself, is wanting to make something happen and being willing to lure the dog or use other methods that don't actually denote any kind of understanding to feel like you're making progress. I think that's something Mm -hmm. I see out of beginner folks a lot that they're like, no, I just, I did a whole novice course, but it was like, or or I I guess a sort of an easier example is luring the dog through the weaves, right? So you get your hand in there and you push, you sort of push and pull them without touching them. You're luring their nose through the weaves. That dog has no idea how to weave if you just stood there and said weave they wouldn't do anything or even if you gave them the motion of walking alongside them and I think that applies weave poles are sort of an easy example but I think that applies to many many things and I think that can be a real challenge for beginners is to be patient and it starts Uh with foundation behaviors right the student says Uh oh yes my dog can back up Okay, show me. The student pushes their dog to back them up. Yeah. Oh. And but if they, stay, you know, the dog has no idea how to do it on their own. Right. So yeah. in the student's mind, yes, their dog is backing up, but their dog doesn't know how to do it. Right. Right. Yeah. <laughs> I see that with um, jumps. I've done several one jump 
workshops where uh, all we're working on is commitment to a jump. And same thing, people think their dogs know how to jump, but if they stand still and don't have any motion, the dog actually has no idea what to do with that obstacle. So they need the handler's momentum in order to take the jump, and people don't realize that that's what they've actually taught. They haven't actually taught the dog the behavior of take the jump. Correct. Yeah. How do you help people get over that? Is there really anything that you can do to help people understand to go slower and to split and be patient? Well, if if I am there to see it, then I can tell them the smaller the smaller steps. Mm-hmm. And if they can follow those instructions, then they'll see the success. Mm-hmm. And hopefully mm-hmm. after doing that several times together, they'll start to be able to do that more on their own. That makes sense. It's good advice. Mm-hmm. It took me a long time. I mean, I'm still not perfect at splitting behaviors up, right? You're always learning new ways to split things up. But mm-hmm. it took me a long time to even know what to train, you know, in the sport. Yeah. You just, you go under the direction of an instructor and it just takes a really long time to be very independent about what to train when you're on your own. Yeah. Skeptic made me go back to square one over <laughs> and over and over again. So lowering criteria just was like a thing for him. <laughs> like, yes. okay, we're just working focus. All right. Now yeah. we have focus. Let's, what's the beginning of the next behavior? Yeah. 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 has taught me that too. It's, it's two step forwards and sometimes three steps back before you get to take one more step forward occasionally. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Versus Sapporo has latent learning. We'll take yes. a step forward and come back and there's two more steps taken while I was gone. Like, wow. Yes. yes. Alegria is like that also. It's very nice. It's very nice. So that's a good segue then into the next question, which is, can you talk about what breeds of dogs tend to excel at agility? Herding breeds, herding breeds do tend to be your, your dogs that excel the most, mm-hmm. partly because they are physically usually capable of it and and because they really want to work and they want to do things and doing things fast is fun for them innately Mm -hmm. so agility is kind of naturally reinforcing for them sporting breeds would be kind of my next category Mm -hmm. your labradors and golden retrievers and you know who, who want to have fun with you you know jumping and and climbing things is fun for them so agility is often naturally fun your dogs like your hounds those might be a little bit more difficult to convince them to come and play with you and that this sport mm-hmm. is fun. Terriers. Um, so, or terriers. terriers. That's what I was thinking. Yeah. Or huskies <laughs> or, you know, yeah. yep. <laughs> or English cocker spaniels sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> and it's not that they can't be trained. A lot of times it's just a little more difficult to motivate those uh, Correct. breeds. So what yes. about, we yeah. We mostly named larger breeds. There are smaller herding dogs. So you will, um, you'll see a lot of Shelties in agility and they do tend to do well. What about some of the smaller breeds since they typically are kind of almost all companion dogs? I mean, there are the um, some smaller Spaniels and stuff, but Papillons tend to be pretty popular and do fairly well. So you have a a little dog or you would like to get a little dog that you might do agility with what other breeds might you look at poodles oh Oh, yeah yeah. poodles are one that i was very interested in but the breed was vetoed by my husband so (laughs) (laughs) So 
Um, and they come in a variety of sizes. They're, they're very intelligent. They usually like to work and they're, they're, they're often very sporty. Mm-hmm. So they're pretty popular and, and usually very talented. Yeah. Um, but you said pap- papillons, they're kind of little spaniels. Um, they're, they're often very good at the sports. Yeah. Pumis, maybe pumis are not your average companion animal, I suppose, but they're, they're a herding kind of a breed though, aren't they? Breed. Hung- they're a Hungarian. Yes, herding? they are. Uh, you yeah. might be right. Yes. Yeah. yeah. You're probably yes. right. Uh, Moody's. Those are also a herding breed, though, aren't they? Yes, they are. They're just, also they're just Hungarian. <laughs> but uh, any dog who's physically capable of it and wants to play with you is, you know, going to have a chance to be a good agility companion. Yeah. Yeah. So I have my my dog that I am interested in doing agility with. Maybe um, I'm not even quite ready to start that obedience class. What are three things that you would suggest people should teach their dogs prior to trying agility? Focus would be number one. Mm-hmm. Can you focus in different places around different distractions? Because if you can't get the dog to focus on you, you cannot do agility because it is an off-leash sport. Right. All along the same lines, number two would be a recall. If you <laughs> lose the focus, can you call the dog back? <laughs> <laughs> Um, and then number three would be teaching your dog how to shape. So how to offer behaviors, yep. because if the dog can think and offer behaviors, then it's much easier to teach all of the agility behaviors. Yep. Yeah, that goes back. I know we've talked a little bit about shaping versus luring. And mm-hmm. while there is certainly a place for luring um, mm-hmm. in teaching agility, it is far more helpful if you can shape behaviors in most cases. Yep. Indeed. Well, and even yeah. if you're not truly shaping, it's just that the dog is willing to offer behaviors and have some options Mm -hmm. yeah i don't think we've talked much about choice but since tug who we have talked about with tug i didn't give him a lot of choice about what he was learning and when and since then i have learned a lot about how to give your dog the choice to offer a behavior and when they choose it then they are wanting to do it. And so they're much more willing, they're happier about it and all those things. If you're trying to force them, and a lot of times luring can look a little bit like forcing Mm -hmm. them or really kind of begging them to do the thing you want them to do, Mm -hmm. they don't don't learn it in a maybe mental space where they're happy about it Mm -hmm. all the time. And with shaping, because they're offering that behavior, it's now becoming their choice to do it. And just like people, if it's your choice to, to do a behavior, you're generally happier to do it than if somebody's forcing you to do it. I think there's also less distraction too. When a behavior is lured or pushed, you have part of your brain on that food or on that pressure mm-hmm. and you're not thinking as much about what you're doing. Yeah, that's a great point. So is there any other advice that you would give to somebody if they haven't been a part of the sport and are thinking about trying it? I would probably try to go to a trial. And watch a lot of videos just so you can see what it's about and start to, to talk to people and, and know that it is very involved. There's a, there's a <laughs> yes. lot. There's a lot to it. That is for sure. And once you think you know something, then your instructor will give you the next five steps. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Or you get the next dog who teaches you all about what you don't know. Oh, my goodness. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> 
So let's shift gears a little bit, Sarah, and talk about your career and the experiences that you've had. Can you talk a little bit about what it was like to have multiple dogs become national agility champions at AKC Nationals events? Well, I guess the biggest thing was surprise. (laughs) (laughs) Um, The photographer actually caught the moment that they told me I won and for on with both dogs and it was hilarious because because <laughs> I don't look at times I was just like yay we're done with the course we I we had fun let's go reward and because the first time was with Rice my Labrador and I was trying to leave the ring they were like no you won I'm like what <laughs> <laughs> that can't be <laughs> so you um, must have been the last dog to run yes with Rice that was the class. last one yeah okay yeah, yeah. They reverse reverse seed though. So if you had the best Mm -hmm. time going in or you were the the highest placement, so that's why you ran last. Correct. So you still didn't think you were going to win? No. (laughs) (laughs) Never thought of it that way. (laughs) (laughs) And with hops, hops you've won three times? Yeah. And one of them was that same year I won with Rice. So oh my gosh. they do prefer preferred first and rice one. And then I had to go get hops to, to run <laughs> <laughs> and he's seated third to last and, and we do our run and we're clean and that's, that's amazing. So we get to lead the ring and go reward, <laughs> like <laughs> the normal thing. And then you have to go sit in a hot seat because we had the fastest time at that point. Okay. So you sit there and the dog after you and cues. It's like, Okay. And then the dog after that NQs. And that means you win. Oh, yep. man. So just, yeah. So that was, again, just like utter shock and amazement. <laughs> and so for those who don't know agility, an NQ means um, they went off course or had faults Dropped such bar. that couldn't qualify in the run. Yeah. So um, if you get a Q, that's a qualifying score. And that means you ran it correctly the whole way through the obstacle course. Yeah. yeah. Man, and yeah. so what was that like to have? And then Tops went back the next year, right, and won it again. Correct. Yes, yes, he came back and won it the second time. And that time we were, um, oh, I'm actually going to get the two and three confused, aren't I? One of the <laughs> years we were seated last. So okay, so the second time we were seated last. Yes, and so everybody else had run, and it was our turn. And oh, this time we ran, we ran clean, and I turn and look, I'm like. What happened? Because again, I never looked at times. I didn't know our time, anybody else's time. <laughs> They're like, you won. So like, then it was, again, surprise still, because I still don't think I'm going to win. And <laughs> I think that's celebrate. I think that's the video that I've seen. And the I the announcer just like builds so much excitement in there and the crowd is cheering and he hops had a running dog walk which wasn't super common at the time um mm-hmm. i'll have to find that that video that i'm talking about that would be a great one to share because it just gives you goosebumps every time you watch it and of course you know it's agility so it's only like 57 seconds long right <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and, oh, and then hops got hurt so he didn't get to use his second buy. Um, so the next year he was out and then we came back, but we didn't really have everything back together. Mm-hmm. So we only made it to the challenge around that next year. And then the year after that, we came back and won a third time. Wow. He's pretty incredible. He's been an amazing teammate. And he is seven now? 
he is eight yeah. and a half. Oh my god! <gasps> I know. That kind of makes me feel old. Oh, I knew we knew you when you know he was like two, and now he's eight and a half. How did yeah. That happen? Oh. And so you've also made some international teams. So can you tell us what that means? And what the process is like to qualify to get on a national team that competes at world events. Super, super involved. And it started with my my first seminar with Linda Mecklenburg. And Daisy Peel was my instructor. And I'm looking at these border collies. And I had my amazing Labrador at the time. But I'm looking at all these dogs. I'm saying, I'm going to be on the world team someday with a border collie. (laughs) And I was able to get one of Daisy Peel's dogs, a, a son of her solar, which is Hops. So just from day one with Hops, this my goal was world team. That was one of my like lifetime goals. I didn't know if it would be with him, but that was definitely a goal at that point. It's of course, then you just start with teaching all the skills and then making sure they can cope with environments and they can actually trial, then getting qualified. So getting all the qualifying scores that you need for that. Then going to the tryout event and doing really, really well and getting a spot on the team. Then going to practices and realizing you don't have half the skills you actually need. (laughs) (laughs) And hitting the training again. Mm -hmm. And and each year it evolves. So I I keep saving course maps because I look at them and go, you know, I don't have that skill. And then we go and train it and then hopefully we can kind of stay up with the times. Um, so it's it's continuing to keep up with these really difficult skills and then being able to have the presence of mind to keep your stuff together, which I can't always do you know, <laughs> at the big events. <laughs> uh, didn't you, was it at EO that you had a bloody nose right before one of your runs? Yes. Uh, you can see blood flying in one of the photos. It was oh! while running. <laughs> Oh, and we man. ran clean on that one. It was, oh. yes, that was one of those ever memorable runs. <laughs> <laughs> so far, Alyssa and I are still only dreaming of finding the same success as you have had with your dogs. And we just really admire how, what you've been able to accomplish in the sport and to, to be so successful and to, you know, we'll we'll talk about this. Um, you mentioned Daisy Pill a couple times. We're going to have her on um, for our next episode to talk a little more specifically about international agility. But the fact that you've found so much success on both sort of the national and international level, I, I think just speaks volumes. So kudos, kudos to you on all of your mm-hmm. success. Thank you. It's been a lot of hard work and some luck. yes well yeah your agility career has been incredible and i love that your interactions with your dogs are always so positive like they always look like they're having fun and that is kind of rare in the sport and so i really admire that thank you that's a big goal of mine that we're out there having fun yeah talking a little bit about success so we're talking about these sort of giant herculean successes that you've been able to accomplish when you think about your students when they sort of join agility what do you see as their successes in terms of kind of the growth that that they experience sort of like what's what's in it for people who we've talked about sort of how hard and how much work it can be but why Mm -hmm. would people why would people go through all this (laughs) Well, kind of because it is so hard, 
that when you finally succeed at something that you've put so much work into, that feels really good. Like we cults are hard and they're complicated. And I have a couple of um, what we call novice A students in classes right now. And those are people who have never trained agility dogs before. So they, you know, kind of lack this base understanding because it's so complicated. And their dogs are just now starting to weave. And it is just so cool, both on the dog's face that they figure this puzzle out and on the human's face that they have succeeded together in this big training puzzle. It's a partnership. Yeah, that genuine joy that you get from just tackling that hurdle and and finally succeeding. Exactly. That reminds me, I have had some memories coming up in my Facebook posts this last few days of Tug, and I really struggled with the weave poles, as many people do when they're new to the sport, and several of the videos have been about him in the weaves. It's been been fun to see, and I, I always wish when I see those two that I had known better ways to teach him the weaves so that he could have understood them a little bit better, but he tried so hard. No, I definitely, there are many things I wish I knew better with the first dogs. (laughs) Yeah, I think we all do. So is it safe to say that you'd recommend this sport to most dog owners? No. (laughs) Oh, interesting. (laughs) Tell us more. We've mentioned why it's hard. And if you're not willing to put in the work, then it's a lot of failure. Yeah. Yeah. And that's not fun. It's not fun for you and it's not fun for the dog. So if you don't have the time and the access to at least some equipment, then I wouldn't recommend it. Be hard. That's valid. And it it doesn't mean you can't find access to stuff. I mean, a lot of times when you're starting in the sport. You don't have access, but you still need to put in a lot of the basic work. And then if you decide to move further on into the sport and get in competition, you can find those resources. Um, But you have to be willing to put in the time. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. There's the, so for us locally, and I think, so, I mean, I live in Washington too, but I live closer to Portland and Sarah lives up in the Seattle area. And there are practice Mm -hmm. barns that you can rent time at, there's a facility called Argus, right? Yes. That's something that's common in agility is that you would get a half hour, an hour rental time at a place that has all of the equipment. So it's not that you Mm -hmm. have to make that initial investment and usually an instructor will help you find, you know, let you know of places that you could look into to rent some time. But there is, you're talking that additional time commitment. And that was where it went with me. When I started with Dexter, I was doing, you know, the one hour class and I didn't, I didn't really have anything at home. When I taught him the the table, I I used an ottoman at at home. Like that was how I taught him to jump on the table. (laughs) And lie down, right? It was like, well, that's what you have to do at first. Yeah. Yeah. Is find stuff and yep. use that until you can. I put a broom yeah. over a couple of chairs. Like I was, yep. I was totally going to, I was, I mean, I was hooked instantaneously. Plungers for weevils. Oh, yeah. No. I, I got the stick in right? the ground. Yeah. It's stick in the ground <laughs> kind. Um, but it didn't take that long. And I started sharing a barn time and renting some barn time. And so I was practicing twice a week. And for me, this just is totally depends on where you live. But it was a good like half hour, 45 minute drive that I was doing Mm -hmm. twice a week. Mm -hmm. And it's very weird to think that I've been basically doing agility practice two, if not three times a week for getting closer to that 
10 year mark now. It is a big investment. I guess the thing that I that I see a little bit differently maybe than you Sarah is I think it's totally worth trying. I, to me that's the you can certainly try and yeah. if you love it great. Absolutely. And if you don't great. Yeah. Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. And I think, you know, the funny part is um, now that I know so much more about the sport and I have with my latest puppy in particular, there are so many pieces of the sport that you don't need equipment for. The hard part is you don't know that until you've been in it for a while. (laughs) And so... So that's a little bit tough because when you're first brand new, you don't know what skills you can teach off of the equipment. And that's why most new people always want to be on the equipment. But the longer you get into it, you'll see people who are experts keep their dogs off the equipment for a very long time because you can do so much of it without even touching it. I do so much living room agility, so much concept training inside. Yep. Yep. Oh, most of most of Ollie's career has been in t- ten by ten space, and I have a whole arena outside I could yeah. use, but mm-hmm. but I don't need it for so much of her foundation work. Um, so it you know it's a tricky thing. It it all takes learning, but yeah, I, I think do you think the other thing that is important to call out, and Sarah, you mentioned this really early on, is that it it is important to go about agility in the right way, and I think sometimes if you just know like you're an instant gratification kind of person your dog is not going to be running down the the dog walk right away that's not really the kind Mm -hmm. of just like to lure them Mm -hmm. across that piece of equipment and and trying to get them to do that that's not really the best way to go about things partly because it is dangerous and that there is um yes this is an a very athletic sport it makes me think of you know people and crossfit and what a big explosion there was. It was a very popular way for people to train. It's sort of this really uh, very competitive, very in, intense way to work out. And it ultimately, you know, declined in popularity because um, people were injuring themselves because they were trying to do mm. too much without mm-hmm. proper training and without proper mechanics. It was really just about kind of get in there and and do it. And so I do think it's important that people really recognize how that there's a lot that that goes into the sport and so by all means try it get out there we clearly love it and can't stop talking about it so get out there try it and and just (laughs) yes recognize that that it's it's just really a journey i we think it's such a worthwhile journey absolutely Um, i love it obviously right Um, (laughs) and do it over and over and over (laughs) and but it's it's interesting. It's that like fine balance between like we're super excited about it, and also there's some things you should know. <laughs> exactly. Yes. Well, you will not be running courses within a week. No, <laughs> no, you will not. <laughs> well, awesome, Sarah. Thanks so much for joining us today. Uh, we know there are several places uh, to find you if people are interested in learning more about your training. And you have a new YouTube channel for pet owners. So tell people where they can find you. My website is sarahbakeragility.com. And that tells you a little bit about my career and my dogs. And Dog Training Demystified is my new YouTube channel where we're going to be working on uh, pet dog behaviors. That's awesome. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes. Thank you for being here. We will post links to those in the show notes for everybody. And again, Sarah, just thanks for joining us today. It was a pleasure to speak with you.
Oh, pleasure to speak with you guys too. Thank you for having me. So that is all for today's podcast. Next time, as we mentioned, we will be talking with Daisy Peel, who has a unique perspective on the sport and has been really focused on international competition for her entire career. So we're going to talk with her about her experience and how the sport of agility is different in the U.S. versus other parts of the world. We look forward to having you join us for that. Thanks for joining us. Make sure to go out and have some fun with your dogs. Talk to you next time. Don't forget to rate share, and subscribe to our podcast so you can join us for our next episode. In the meantime, you can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube, or by visiting our website at www.caninehijinks.com. Hi,